This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and hello, Product Masters. Thank you for listening. Today, we're talking about change, and you know, innovation itself means making change happen. I often think of innovation as in a new way, innovation. And changes, you know, they come from external sources, internal sources. COVID pandemic has been a cause of lots of big changes for us uh, over the last several months. And it's important to think about how these changes impact us. And our guest is here to tell us how to, to survive and profit from radical change. He was the Futurist at HP, making strategic recommendations, and he continues to help organizations prepare for these impacts that the future may bring us. He also has written about this framework that he uses to help explore the, the future in a book titled Rogue Waves, and we'll talk some more about that. As always, if you want to get to the detailed written summary of our discussion together, you'll find those all those great notes that we take for you, and also a one-page action guide so you can walk away and quickly put into action some of the concepts at productmasterynow.com slash three, four, eight. So let's start talking, Jonathan. How are you today? I'm excited to be here. Wonderful to hear you, Chad. Uh, I'm so glad to be talking to you. I think this is a very interesting book, and we'll get into your framework a bit. And as, as we were just chatting a bit before we started the recording here about your time at HP, I was a electrical engineering student, and I loved the history of HP and how that company got started literally in the garage of the founders, right? And lo- lots of electrical engineers have enjoyed time at HP, so it's been a good place. I'm curious about, I've come across you uh, writing about strategy and basically making the statement that business schools are not teaching about strategy in a way that is helpful for organizations. And with my business professor hat on, you know, teaching primarily innovation and product management, I actually don't tend to disagree, but I'm more curious because I saw in your background that just a couple years ago, you actually returned to get a business degree from Stanford. And I'm curious what the purpose of that was and how that kind of fit into the work that you're doing. That's a great question, Chad. So like most people who come up as kind of functional innovators, so I, I was did product innovation for most of my career for about 20 years, I have a really good understanding about how to build an R&D pipeline, how to run R&D processes, so on and so forth. And I was suddenly in the situation where I was working across a 58,000-person organization and across all of these functions – And so what I needed to do was learn what their problems were, were, learn how they thought, learn how to speak the pigeon that they care about. Because if you can even talk a little bit of another person's language, it's stunning how much you can get accomplished and how much more they accept. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so from my perspective, that's why business school is such a great investment. I don't know that it has to do so much with your ability to become uh, a better technical manager, but it certainly helps you learn that language. And and I think that's a critical skill. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. It's uh, one reason why I've often shared with others, if you're thinking about getting an MBA, a key reason for getting an MBA is in one sense, some organizations, you're kind of in the inner circle club, right? There's this expectation that if you're going to move into leadership for some organizations, you have an MBA. But more fundamentally, you learn the language of business that others expect you to have. Right. In, in particularly the language of financial management and financial risk management, mm. uh, which is was certainly formal to my my earlier training. 
So yep. that, that was highly valuable to me. You used a phrase I want to ask you about, the pigeon they care about. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to, I, I don't know this. Tell me more about this. Oh, it's a technical term, actually, in linguistics for a, a variation of a language, and, and particularly hmm. in, in English. So if you look at the BBC, right, they'll have they'll have the BBC translated into English, Spanish, whatever, but they'll also actually have it translated into pigeon, which is, I, I thought, it was like April 1st when I first saw this. I thought it was a joke of some sort. But no, this is actually, uh, it's actually a formal language and it's a derivation of English. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, something new for me to look into. But the point is, yeah, knowing what they're talking about is important and being able to speak that language. So... On to changing the future or maybe understanding the future for how you can benefit from it and not be overruled by it at times. You know, I, I appreciate the title of your book, Rogue Waves, this imagery of the large unexpected wave that might take out the ship, you know, if we're out, out in the ocean. Um, when you examine trends and these potential disruptive events, you have this three-part framework that you talk about in your book. I was hoping that we could, could go through that. And if I got the parts right, it's awareness, behavior change, and culture change. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Okay. But I think before that, we need to back up just, just a little bit, because uh-huh. I think you asked a great question uh, at the beginning, which is, what are business schools not teaching? What What's inaccurate? Okay. And- I think and you teach a lot of product management and project management skills, and you know that. You go into companies for 40 years, learning and development budgets have been decreasing, employee churn has been increasing, and the result of that is when you come in and you try and teach uh, how to think through new kinds of problems uh, in organizations, the expectation is that you have a silver bullet answer. And so the expectation is like, you've created high value a lot of times if you bring in the cookbook, if you've got the recipe for success. The reality is that recipe, it only works if the environment stays the same, right? The If you cook a souffle in New York and you take that same recipe, and I did it uh, once, and you take it to Aspen and you're trying to impress your girlfriend and, and I did it once, uh, that souffle is not going to rise. And unless you know why the recipe works, you don't know how to serve dinner. And that's the big problem that I see in a lot of business school education, a lot of innovation project management education, is that when you take a look at Six Sigma or the more modern variants, if you take a look at extreme programming or the more modern variants, you know, the people who were the founders of those ideas, they understood the problem because it was a constant problem. And then they solved it by creating these cookbooks, and they they solved the problem. But all of a sudden, COVID comes, a financial crisis comes, uh, technology 180, right? We move to the cloud, and IBM's not ready comes. What do you do, right? You can't answer it with the cookbook problem, and you can't answer it with Michael Porter's strategy, and you can't answer it with things like Blue Ocean strategy either, because they all assume that the rules stay the same, even though Mm. the positions might change Right, the 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 game board stays the same. The same, and the problem with you know with that is when you think of a rogue wave, right? This is an unmanageable event, a hundred and twenty foot wave that pops up seemingly out of nowhere, and it pops up because multiple overlapping, individually manageable waves combine in a time and in a place, and. When that happens, the rules change, the, the, the game board goes out the window, it gets soaked, and you've got to start anew. And if you don't know how to cook, 
a recipe ain't going to help you. And so when I think about innovation in times of radical change, you know, I think you need to understand three things, right? Awareness. You need to identify the rose waves that could disrupt your business, the range of them. You have to create behavior change, right? People have to have the skills to gain, to plan for, to respond, and to exploit the unexpected. If they don't, and you've got awareness, right? They're just sitting on the beach watching the tsunami come out. Mm. And you've got to create a culture change in many cases, less so in some high-growth tech companies and whatnot. But in many cases, you need to design processes uh, to plan for, to respond to, and exploit the unexpected. And you need to build incentives, hard incentives, you know, money, uh, and soft incentives, congratulations, uh, fame, that make that possible. If you don't, it doesn't matter how much you invest in intelligence and spreading it. It doesn't matter how smart your people are at exploiting change. They're not going to do it because you're incentivizing them very specifically to keep things the same. Right. And so I think you need to look at all of those those issues. So if we dig into that idea of awareness first, uh-huh. what are the social, what are the economic, and what are the technological changes that are going to impact your organization? And when you think about rogue waves, they're the result of those overlapping social, economic, and technological changes. COVID being an example where this 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 event, this disease in Wuhan, and there were two other novel respiratory diseases in the last decade in Wuhan, suddenly goes exponential and it causes supply chain issues, it causes health issues, it causes financial issues, monetary issues all around the world. You know, what you want to think about is what kinds of things could impact your financial, your operational, your strategic performance, or your external environment? So I call that the four foes, financial, operational, external, and strategic. As project managers, as process managers, we're really focused on those financial and operational issues. But the reality is that the strategic and the environmental issues are far more likely to up and, and we give them short shrift. For instance, 8 out of 10 of the largest publicly held companies in the United States failed to identify pandemics as a risk in their 2019 SEC filing. So that doesn't surprise me much, actually, right? I actually would be surprised if board of directors are sitting around talking about the possible pandemic coming. And why is that? Because it's such a rare event. That's the thing, right? Now, this is when it happens... Is it? So when, you, when we look at evaluating risk, there's, and as humans, we're not particularly good at evaluating really high risk options, right? But the likelihood of something that is tantamount to a pandemic, right? When the risk is really high with a low probability, uh, and we tend to kind of often... So that, that one just doesn't surprise me so much, but obviously there were at least 20% of organizations that had this on their radar and were no doubt better prepared than the rest, So I'd say two things here. The first is we perceived it is a high impact, low probability of, but the Mm -hmm. reality is that the probability was increasing at a rapid rate. We thought if this is a one in a hundred year, you know, experience, but it wasn't. And, And the reason it wasn't is that we're pushing up against the biome. We're increasing population density just between 1990. Five and in 2020, we increased the population of Wuhan, which is a highly forested places where respiratory diseases happen frequently, put a population in there the size of Los Angeles. We did that across China, 400 million people moving into new environments like this, connected them by high-speed rail so the trajectory to, to escape was faster. And we increased the population traveling out of China between 2010 and 2019 by 10 times. 
make moving it from an irrelevant tourism spender to the largest tourism spender on the planet. And so when you take a look at this risk, it wasn't a static risk. It was a highly dynamic risk. When you take a look at the floods that just happened in Germany, yes, it was not uh, projectable, right? It was a low probability event. But the reality is, according to some recent modeling, that we looked at this as a one in a hundred event, a hundred year flood. And the reality is that there's a 14% chance, according to some modeling right now, of that happening every year. And so we misassessed, we misassessed the, the likelihoods. We looked at historic data in our historical experience and we said that doesn't happen here. The reality when you take a look at a pandemic is we had two respiratory pandemics in this century, right? Like these are not becoming more rare things. What we said was those haven't happened here is a white you know, male executive in a Fortune 50 company. This hasn't happened to me in America, but it's happened other places and other places were more prepared. Right. So, so there, there's two things in there I, I want to maybe explore a little bit more with you, see what you think. One is the models itself. We might be making some assumptions about the utility of models and our, our, what we take away from those models. The, to me, the more important thing when it comes to innovation is you talked about that there was, and I would maybe overly broadly use the word trends, but that there was data available that might indicate trends that would tell us, if we were paying attention to this, that the risk was actually higher than I may personally assess, right? If I was aware of those trends, I might go, well, okay, I can see this perfect storm condition as a possibility that this is a higher risk. And, and maybe we'll get to this in another area, but what I'm curious about is how, as an organization, do we really become aware of the trends that are shaping the future. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I think this is, this is vital. It's a cultural shift in a lot of organizations. We get incentivized to do the things our organizations want us to do. The second that we go outside and we look at what's going on outside and we say, hey, the future that we want is not the future we're going to get. Like you, you get the, you get the, you know, you're chicken little, the sky is falling uh, really quickly. You get the, you're a panic monster. You get the, you know, like you can go down the list of, of things that you hear. And I think there's a cultural shift that, you know, we've been going through greater trade harmonizing. We've been going through market, global market growth. We've been going through, uh, uh, low inflation monetary policy, you know, for the last 40 years. And so we've made some assumptions about what the future will look like based on our past. And there are very few indicators that suggest that this low volatility environment will increase. All of the indicators suggest it'll increase. And so we need to look outside. We can't assume that our cookbooks will still work. Okay. And so I I think the first thing uh, you might want to do, and I, I wrote an HBR article about this recently, about what we did at HP that helped us prepare for the pandemic is we had what we call a future unit, which is what I was a part of, where we looked at these social, economic, and technological things. We looked at what they meant across our different functions. We reported annually or biannually to the C- across the entire C-suite. And that work, that reporting was brought up to the board level. We did identify pandemics. As a- and more importantly, we looked at those four foes that I talked about, financial, operational, external, and strategic. And we said, okay, well, what types of risks do we really face here? What what happens if we have a, a material shortage, right, in, in memory chips? What happens if we have uh, a demand 
misforecast, what happens if so on and so forth. The result of this is that we were better balanced when the rogue wave hit, we were better able to respond. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the result of that is even though in 2020, at the beginning of of the year, Carl Icahn came, tried to do a leveraged buyout of the company with with Xerox, fully funded. We we had COVID, our supply chains went upside down, and our Many of our major products, because HP is a, a B2B vendor of office, of office equipment, they disappeared. And yet we were able to pivot. We were diverse enough and we had planned well enough, even though we didn't really take a rogue wave that ser- that you know, COVID pandemic that seriously. We were ready to pivot and we were ready to respond. The result is that HP was stable in terms of revenue and earnings relatively over 2020. Well, Xerox, our would-be purchaser, their earnings dropped by 60% or 69% by gap, their, their earnings per share. And so I, th- I think that's, you know, it's, it's not a statistical reference, but I think it's a pretty strong story about what happens when you start thinking broadly about your future. Yeah. Yeah. This is anytime, like, you know, as a product person, if I do a SWOT analysis, that might help me, a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, you know, as a standard strategic tool, that might help me think beyond the boundaries that I'm thinking about my product right now, right? And help me recognize some maybe larger trends that are taking place that could impact my product. And looking outside, you know, those the four foes is a nice framework, right, for this to think about the larger uh, factors that might be impacting your organization. You know, we're kind of talking at the moment about the negative side of this, right, in the context of a big pandemic impacting the operation. At the same time, isn't that same work that you you talked about, right? Recognizing trends that might be impacting the organization in the future and what the future might look like, doesn't that also create a catalyst for new opportunities? And we didn't we didn't even talk about this yet. And you're you're right. And that's that's really I think the power. You know, at HP there were a couple of things bouncing around, looking at our core technology and and what what the company really does is what's called microfluidics. They move very small dots of liquid, you know, millions of them. Uh, hmm. On, on a page to, to make inkjet prints. That's their core technology. And it's relevant for things like 3D printing, but it's also highly relevant for disease diagnostics. Hmm. And part of the reason that we were so clear about pandemics as a threat is we'd identified this as an opportunity and we were looking at, okay, well, what might be the accelerants for this technology? And just before COVID hit, just before I left HP, at the end of 2019, we funded a, a, a business unit that's now been publicly announced that develops these technologies for, for you know, to some extent for COVID, but for the next pandemic and for, for all of the kind of medical and demographic issues that we're going to see within population. So the way I think about just to, to get into just some nitty gritty, because I know you want to get into the innovation management side of this. I can I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> uh, we, talk, we talked about that idea of the four foes, the financial, operational, external, and strategic threats. You can look internally and say, okay, well, what are those and how do I change them? Uh, you can look at your competitors, right? And, and say, okay, well, where can I play that they can't? Or you can look at your customers and you can say, okay, what terrifies them? Because the more of those threats, the more of that pain you alleviate, because those are board level pains, right? The more of that pain you alleviate, the higher your value and the higher your lock-in. And so the way I think about it, 
is in game theory they have they have a couple of concepts so so this is like looking at the rules of games and they apply whether you're you're talking about candyland or whether you're talking about you know auctions for for travel on kayak right the same the same underlying dynamics apply and and there are four that are i think really important for innovation one is this idea of static to dynamic if you can take a dynamic threat and you make it static that's that's an insurance policy so when I think about where I live, I'm up on, in uh, Northern California and there's a drought here. There have been two grass fires on the bottom of my hill, right? The, the, the threat of my house catching fire is incredibly dynamic right now. But I pay $99 a month or whatever it is, and now it's a static threat for me, mm-hmm. right? At least the, the financial impact. You can move from symmetric to asymmetric or the other way around. So in 2011, the Daiichi nuclear power plant had a meltdown that impacted Toyota's supply chains and production for for months. And afterwards, this is this is the inventor of lean manufacturing, really, when you think about it. Right. And these guys are the leanest, greatest manufacturing system. machine on the planet. Right. And they said, okay, well, wait a second. Where do we put buffers in our system so that no matter what happens, no matter what rules break down, we have consistent supply and we're able to pivot to the new situation. Well, they put a six-month buffer of semiconductors into their supply chain. The result of that was in 2016, I believe, when Taiwan had an earthquake. They rolled right through it. This past year, they also rolled right through. And because of their agile manufacturing, they were also able to take slow down things like their, their minivan production line and shift over to energy-efficient vehicles, right? Because all of a sudden, no one was taking their kids to school that year. And so they actually had a relatively good year where, well, many of the other manufacturers had some serious problems. You can move, another idea is you can move from synchronous to asynchronous. So we were talking uh, just offline about the the problem I often see, see with Agile, which is, you know, people say, hey, I can pivot 20% left or right. And it's like, that's great if you've got enough time before you hit the wall. And so the question oftentimes is, how do you take this threat that hits everybody at the same time and make it an asynchronous threat so you have a little more time to play? And how do you move something from permanent to temporary? or temporary to permanent. So one of the things, the the great breakthrough of this year, and perhaps of the century, is we've taken this this disease, at least in the United States, COVID, that should be a permanent threat here. It should have it should shut us down until we actually hit herd immunity for the disease, until enough people get sick. And it's made a temporary threat, you know, inside of a year. I mean this is this is pretty exceptional that we've we've shifted the course of nature in a year. And the result is that Pfizer and Moderna, you know, I don't even know what their valuations are. And so these, these, what I call risk switches create, you know, help you figure out where in your financial, operational, external, and strategic competencies you need to focus, but they also help you figure out exactly how you need to innovate. When you take a look at your customers, the same thing happens. And when you take a look at truly disruptive companies, whether it's Amazon, Facebook, uh, Uber, Airbnb, what creates the value is that they've actually flipped all four of these switches at the same time. Hmm. So the more of these you can flip, the more value you create, whether it's static to dynamic, strategic, I'm sorry, symmetric to asymmetric, synchronous to asynchronous, or permanent. Okay, so the threat I'm still, and hopefully we'll get back to behavior change and culture change as well, but awareness issue. As an innovator product manager, I do uh, consider the trends so very important. 
right? Then, and being able to recognize a trend that you can ride up and capitalize on, or a tra- trend that's decreasing that you can abandon appropriately and get out of to not do damage, that's really, really, really helpful. And you had shared that at HP, there was a group of you that helped this awareness topic, right? That helped look out to see what's going on in the world in relationship to your forefoes and how it might impact HP in the future. As maybe the individual product manager that wants to bring some of this in, right? Or maybe a product leader is listening that might have access to some more resources. Where might you start with that? How do you create this awareness engine on a budget, let's say, (laughs) right? Well, I think, you know, obviously my book's a great place uh, to start. Excellent resource. (laughs) I I think, you know, within the book, and I'll I'll give something away, we we identify 10 major trends that that are trackable and likely to change the world in, in the next couple of years. Okay. So I think as a project manager, one of the best places that you can start is to think about what happens when 10 major undercurrents collide. So we're seeing a shift in demographics, both in the United States uh, and around the world. All 20, I believe, of the major economies uh, are starting to see aging populations, if not already, over the next decade. And so there's this question about you know, even though we might be getting richer and consumption may be increasing, do we have the labor to support that? We're looking at what I call the data economy, right? And, you know, you take a look at companies like Airbnb and, and Uber, and they're, they're, the question to really ask is, you know, where is that trend creating new value? And where is it extracting value, right? Where are you stealing from Peter to pay Paul? And I think a lot of it is actually value extraction instead of value creation. That's a huge issue. Automation, right? Where do we have uh, labor availability versus what does that labor cost, right? What what does that dam- dynamic look like? Constantly see companies saying, hey, we're going to automate to save money. But the question is, when you automate to save money, doesn't the cost of that labor just decrease? Yeah, so so I think we're going to see a lot of evidence of false, false savings. We're, we see the rise of Asia when you take a look at the U.S., at least assumption about China and in China, Southeast Asia, uh, India. Everyone's having a really hard time this week. But what I think we fail to recognize is that China does more trade with pretty much every country besides France uh, and the UK. And it, if Italy counts as a major trade part- partner, Italy, Mexico, and Canada, they, they trade more with everybody else in the world, pretty much, yeah. than the U.S. And we've got to think about what that means, because they're no longer just a Me Too economy, they're actually becoming an innovation leader. They produce more patents, high quality triadic patents, not just like junk. And they've been on a relatively straight line for 20 years in doing mm-hmm. this. So we've got to think about that, that. What happens when China becomes an innovation exporter? What happens in terms of product priority, right? When you start seeing China first products in the US instead of US first products in China. We're starting to see these these emerging technologies, whether it's AI, the Internet of Things, you, you know the you know the list. And the question is not just how do you increase efficiency with this, but what's the social impact? And I think we need to balance this. We need to understand. You know, a lot of the Silicon Valley companies, they overexpanded. They got excited about what they could do. And now they're seeing global pushback. And in many cases, they don't have the government relations competencies to, to manage it and handle it. They're, 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 they're back on their heels. So you got to start to think about those kinds of things if you're a tech company. Zoom had to hire a global, you know, heavy-duty global government relations capability in the process of the pandemic. I mean, they just took the best people from every company and hired them. Um, 
because they didn't have it and they suddenly became a global utility. We're seeing this closing innovation window. We're seeing more innovation, which is great. It's happening faster, which, but that means that product cycles are accelerating. Right. What does that mean? That the value of your innovation, if you can't capture it almost immediately, decreases and it's going to continue to. Remixing and convergence. I think this is a really important one. You see a lot of disruptive innovation, right? But the question really in this world where the value of innovation drops quickly is how do you disruptively integrate, right? Because the value isn't just in the innovation, it's, it's in how do, you, how do you click it all together. We're seeing digital trust, right? This is a huge issue. This question is we start to see surveillance footage, human data, this explosion of private data, cybercrime. What's a public good and what's a private good? And we still haven't answered this, and, and it's a very different answer from, from location to location to location. When I think about GDPR, for instance, European data privacy rules, they harmonized regulations across 27 countries, I think. At the same time, the U.S. developed 27 different regulations for 27 different states. I think it was 28, actually. So, so no matter how much this harmonizes, it's going to fracture, too. And we've got to think as product managers, as product leaders, about what that means in the future. For instance, uh, if, in, in my case, as a book guy, uh, all of a sudden, I'm not allowed to send out email spam to everybody on Right? This isn't just a big business problem. This is a problem for somebody who's writing a book. And we need to think about new social contracts. Right? What, what are rights versus what's regulation? So we're seeing this kind of conversation happening right now where we have on any given night in the United States, we have 500,000 plus homeless people. And that's pre-COVID numbers. And we got you know, space cadets, billionaire space cadets going into the going off to the stars, right? At, at some point, this conversation has to be had about, you know, what, what are the rights? What are the regulations? As we have these new technologies, as we have this consolidation of wealth because of these efficiency-driven technology. Um, and it's going to be a huge change. I don't know what the answer to these problems is going to be. And it's not that you need to fo focus on any one of these. It's what happens when you start stacking these things up and you take three or five and you say, what would happen? You know, and what would happen if there was a change, if it, you know, what would cause, if these combined, what kind of political shifts would they cause? If there was a pan pandemic, what would the, the outcomes be? If there were partner losses or, or you know, how, you know, what would the impact be or what, what partner losses could it create? How, how would it impact our credit rate, right? What kind of industry, industry crises could this cause? And it doesn't really matter which combination you pick. The issue is that you look at the range of possibility. You know, and I talk a lot uh, to very practical product managers, uh, project managers, and they tell me, hey, you, you, can't, you can't predict the future. And I would argue that you can. It's just not in the range that you would like. You're either going to die or you're not. But you know, if you're working for stock, if you're working for shares, if you're working, you know, if you've invested in a home, you believe that you can predict the future to some extent. Um, and I'd argue that it should be at least the extent of change in the past. And so if you can't, if you don't believe that you can predict the future, if you don't believe that these things are going to cause shocks, that's fine. I'd ask you to look at any decade over the last, over the 20th century or over the last hundred years and the things that happened and ask if you're ready for those. Right. Because the answers will be the same. Yeah. Right. If you're ready for, for that century, you'll probably be ready for this one. And the issue is that most companies aren't. Yeah. It's a very good point. And big changes do happen. And I believe you can do a reasonable job of predicting the future as a product manager, what will impact you. And for listeners that want to investigate that more, just do a search on the podcast site, productmasterynow.com for trends. And because we've 
covered trends a, a fair bit too. These are helpful frameworks for us to get our hands around, right? And I think that's part of the problem is we look at this and go, well, where do we start? And having the framework that you've provided helps with that, right? The 10 major trends that might change the world, your four foes, the three-part framework for assessing all this in some sense and preparing awareness, behavior change, and culture change, which I did not get back to because I wanted to dive into awareness so much. But the good news is you have all the details in Rogue Waves, so people can go find out more about this. I really appreciate the discussion about this. As listeners know from me doing this bit, I do sponsor this podcast by talking about training I do. And it tied in so well in a couple of points you shared when we were talking about strategy before and you sharing, you know, basically just using the cookbook approach to strategy and repeating it doesn't work because you have to take into account the environment, right? Like when you were cooking that souffle in New York City versus Aspen, Colorado, which is at 10,000 know, feet elevation, big difference. And the approach I use is called the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM experience. And that approach takes teams, often of product managers, but sometimes directors, sometimes senior leaders, on a nine-week journey where we meet for an hour and 15 minutes a week. And the purpose is to get them to really unravel, I use seven key knowledge areas based on research, to unravel those knowledge areas on, in terms of how they apply to their actual work, right? So I'm not by any means lecturing. They're doing the discovery themselves with some guidance from me in kind of an organic manner because it has to apply to them, right? It, it can't just be the, the cookbook. Here's the playbook on how you do things. And sometimes even I've been asked to come into organizations after they bought the very expensive playbook from someone else, and they're just struggling with implementing it, right? They don't have the foundation yet to actually implement it. So have you ran into that in organizations? I absolutely hear it all the time. And you're actually getting to the, the behavior question. And, and I, I think there are five deeper competencies that are typically unevenly distributed in organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think, it, I think it goes back to companies that are high, primarily college graduates are, are the employees, undergraduate education. If you have a degree in quantitative social sciences, your understanding of how to understand a changing environment is very different than if you have a degree in finance or mechanical engineering or even the, the difference between what you learn in mechanical engineering and what you learn is in computer science are completely different. Yeah. And let me tie that back to what you started with, which was behavior change, right? And so my challenge in organizations, I used to do, you know, one time three-day workshops to help them understand how to be better innovators, how to better produce products for customers. There was no behavior change afterwards, right? They're not actually taking the information and putting it into action. But now with the RPM experience... Nine, nine weeks, 75 minutes a week, I actually see behavior change. I see in collaboration improve. I see them applying the information as we go. And so it's been working really well for organizations. Interestingly enough, uh, this has been huge in China. This is tied to a certification with a professional organization called PDMA. And China has grabbed a hold of it, and they're certifying more people than anyone in the world at the moment now. So they are serious about becoming better at innovating. For our listeners that want to check out this more, just go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM, and you can find out about that experience and how it might help your organization. This has been really good, Jonathan. We could go into so many more areas. We kind of just scratched the surface. I wanted to dive into awareness more as we were talking about it. But people can get more details, certainly, in your book. First, I love innovation quotes. What did you bring for us, and what does that one mean to you? If I had to pick one piece of advice, a single piece of advice, uh, to 
any product manager, any project manager, it would be to really understand the game you're playing before you choose a strategy. So this sounds like a quote from your book. Yes, it is. In fact, from my book. Yes. Excellent. And, and the reality is it doesn't matter what project management approach you take, what leadership approach you take, what financial strategy, if you don't, you know, if you're playing the wrong game. Yep. Very important to know what field you're playing in, what the rules are of that, and then you can come up with strategy. Strategy is basically what, what game are you playing? So thank you for sharing the quote with us. And in a world of greater change, more volatility, we need to spend more time on this than ever. Yep, that's a good point. How can people find out about your book or any other resources that you have to, for listeners to know about? So you can always find me at jonathanbrill.com. I'm publishing pretty much constantly. There's new articles in the last month or two from Harvard Business Review, South China Morning Post, something come out, coming out in Time Magazine shortly, a number of others. Congratulations, very nice and uh, psychology today. So find me there and you can find Rogue Waves on Amazon or any bookseller that you like. Excellent. And I will make sure there's a link to Rogue Waves on Amazon in the show notes and also to jonathanbrill.com so people can have an easy way of getting more details. Appreciate your time with us. For those listening, Product Masters, uh, just as a reminder, you'll find a summary of all the notes of what we discussed and that one-page action guide at productmasterynow.com slash 348. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.